an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a spooky TV movie made in 1957 put Portland, Oregon in the nuclear crosshairs. When the sirens sound, some cities go underground, take to shelter, particularly if there's little warning. But Portland evacuates according to a well-thought-out plan. And then, from the archives, the spring training ghost towns of Seattle baseball. We're talking about the Depression years. It was trying to get the best deal available. Each city had some access to money, but not necessarily what the ball club really needed. And stay tuned for a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening this week in the Pacific Northwest with the all-new Nevergreen Minute. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And on Fridays, our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us for All Over the Map, his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, how another of Washington's lesser-known border communities is weathering the pandemic, the town of Northport. Morning, Dave. Yeah, Northport's in northeastern Washington, 35 miles north of Colville, which is where the nearest grocery store is, by the way, right along the Columbia, about 10 miles south of the Canadian border. This place was once the most populous town in Stevens County with a huge copper smelter, railroad shops, all kinds of businesses. Population peaked around 1920 with about 1,000 people. Nowadays, down to about 300. I spoke with Clifford Ward. He's a librarian at the Northport Library. It's at a little house right there on Center Street. He told me Northport was founded by Daniel C. Corbin as part of the Spokane Falls and Northern Railway, which connected Spokane to Canada. Prior to the railroad being built in the 1890s, um, it was just steamboats that would come up, and they could only go as far as the Little Dalles, which is about 8, 10 miles south downriver of town, where the river narrows down into a real rocky and steep place, and they had a steamboat on the other side, on the upriver side, which would go clear up into, you know, way up into Revelstoke, B.C. Yeah, and these aren't the big Dalles down by the Dalles, Oregon. These are the Little Dalles. Little Dalles. Yeah, I know. Northport isn't actually on the border, but there's two nearby crossings at what are now pretty much ghost towns, other than the crossing, of course. One of, uh, is north of Northport on Highway 25 called Frontier, Washington. The other is over at a place called Boundary, which is named after the Boundary, of course. Uh, Clifford Ward says when you do cross into Canada, you find two very different towns just north of the border, Rossland and Trail. Rossland is the, um, you know, kind of a hip ski town. Uh, with a lot of uh, outdoor people that, you know, do a lot of skiing and mountain biking and, and that kind of stuff. And then Trail is more of an industrial town. It's got the big smelter there. Yeah, they still have a big lead and zinc smelter there in Trail, B.C. Now, before the pandemic, Northport did steady tourism business with Canadians coming down to eat and drink year-round. That Red Mountain Ski Resort is right there about 20 minutes from Northport. Uh, Clifford Wards, he's, he's a librarian, but he's also a musician. Before the pandemic, he had a steady gig playing during the dinner hours at one of the two taverns in town. Um, Northport has suffered during the pandemic, but things are beginning to look up. Um, the two places to eat there are Rivertown Grill and Kook's Tavern. Clifford Ward says Rivertown has a larger menu. It's been a while since he's been there, but he is partial to their turkey melt. That's my big finish right there. <laughs> the finish. Can I have a sting? <laughs> turkey melt. I'll try it again. To their turkey melt. Ta-da. Okay. okay. I wish I'd been more prepared for that. 
<laughs> I could have done something real yeah. nice for you there, but I've never been there in person. But I highly recommend everyone should get in the car and drive to Northport. How many miles away, away is that for the? Oh, it's like probably two hundred fifty miles. Two hundred fifty miles. miles. Yeah. Well, it's worth it's it. The though. turkey melt you drive two hundred fifty <laughs> miles for. That's their motto. All of Felix's features are at mynorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Whether we travel by water, land, or air, we are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. And so this day called X, which began in such an ordinary way, is no ordinary day. At 10.35, the banshee wail of the siren echoes the warning, and the city prepares for survival. Apparently in 1957, everybody talked like Rod Serling. A TV docudrama that first aired on CBS back in 1957 shows what the people of Portland would do if Soviet bombers were on their way to launch an atomic attack. The Cold War, of course, is over, but our resident historian Felix Bennell decided this would be a great day to look back at a docudrama which was titled A Day Called X, Felix, brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Yeah, we will be playing some siren noises today if you're behind the wheel, so be careful. So back in the early 50s, Portland had the best-funded civil defense program in the U.S. They passed a ballot measure to fund local preparations to be ready in case of nuclear attack by the Soviets. They even built a big bunker in the hills outside of town with an underground operations center where city government could relocate in case of a threat. Now, in September of 1955, they held something called Operation Greenlight, this was a big evacuation drill of downtown Portland where they practiced one afternoon getting thousands of cars and tens of thousands of people out of the city in about an hour. Because the big threat in the 50s was from long-range bombers, there was a scenario where a city like Portland might get a few hours' warning before an attack. So CBS decided to make a half-hour film about Portland's efforts to plan for the worst. Actor Glenn Ford was the narrator. It was A Day Called X, and it premiered on TV in the first weekend of December 1957. When the sirens sound, some cities go underground take to shelter, particularly if there's little warning. But Portland evacuates according to a well-thought-out plan. The question is, at 10.45, on the day called X, will it work? Now, I've watched this a few times. It's a great time capsule of Portland in 1957. And according to Portland historian Doug Kank Crispin, some viewers actually found it pretty realistic. People in Portland were calling the Oregonians' news desk to see if they were actually being bombed. Even though if people will watch A Day Called X, and I hope everybody listening to this will indeed do it, uh, you'll see a caption underneath it that says, an attack is not taking place, right? Uh, So even though they kind of had this warning, it was viewed as so realistic that people were terrified that they were about to get nuked. You know, it's not quite War of the Worlds in its simulation. I'd call it more of a procedural. The bombers are projected to arrive over the Rose City at about 1.47 p.m., Day Called X shows Portlanders calmly packing up and getting out of town for about two hours while the clock inches forward. Here's a bit from probably the scariest part of the film. And at 1.32, as directed by the mayor, the siren sounds once more. Take cover. The evacuation is stopped, and there is nothing to do but wait. Back in the operations center, the day called X reaches its climax. Time now, 1.47. Enemy bombers are probably overhead. You know, now the built-in prep time between detection of enemy bombers headed this way and their arrival was outvoted by the early 1960s. Missiles are just a heck of a lot faster. And in fact, within about six years of a day called X, according to Portland archivist and historian Brian Johnson, 
Portlanders had a major change of heart. In 57, we were the poster child for, you know, this is what you need to do. And by 63, our council voted to just do away with the Office of Civil Defense because um, Stanley Earle, the commissioner at the time that led the charge against it, said that there isn't going to be any time and we're just giving people false hope. You know, and we held smaller scale evacuation drills here in Portland and Seattle in the mid-1950s, but nobody made a film about it as far as I know. And the notion of civil defense evolved away from only enemy attack to a more comprehensive approach to emergency management. The idea became to prepare government and civilians for all imaginable situations, from war, accidents, and earthquakes, and other natural disasters. Now, one wrinkle here is that in Washington in 1983, there is a provision of the law funding emergency management that specifically forbid authorities from preparing for, quote, emergency evacuation or relocation of residents in anticipation of nuclear attack, unquote. I'm told we're the only state in the, in the union with a law like this. Now, the genesis of that law is a little unclear to me. It might have been a largely symbolic gesture about the futility of trying to evacuate. That's you know, the early 80s and the Reagan era of kind of the last real gasp of the Cold War. But when North Korea threatened the West Coast in 2017, there was talk of repealing that part of the law. But uh, not to worry, says Robert Ezell. He's a director of Washington Military Department's Emergency Management Division. He told me that the effects of big disasters, whether earthquakes or severe weather or even war, are pretty similar, and the state is prepared. There was an attempt uh, five years ago uh, within the legislature to remove that provision when uh, there were con- concerns about North North Korea and missile tests, but uh, those eventually did not end up passing. And there's nothing there that prevents us from planning and preparing for everything that uh, that we need to do. You know, many of us are old enough to remember the Cold War and some of the disturbing things we saw on TV, if not A Day Called X uh, with Glenn Ford, maybe The Day After with Jason Robards. And uh, we've had about three decades since the Soviet Union collapsed where the nuclear threat felt like it had somewhat diminished. Uh, Mike Pretty thinks about this kind of thing in the work he does for the State Department of Health, where he supervises the environmental sciences section for the Office of Radiation Protection, which I just learned yesterday that we have a, such a thing. His office monitors the environment for radiation whether from Hanford or the Navy base of Bangor or even the measurable radiation that reached here from Chernobyl 36 years ago. He told me his office is prepared for whatever happens, though he's not overly concerned. But Mike Pretty says that reduced threat that we've all experienced since the early 90s is something he's definitely aware of, you know, e- even more so nowadays. I'm 60 years old, and I've been like you. I, I lived through the Cold War, and I think back then we were just more accustomed to this sort of thing. And... Um, I think the 30 years of peace has, has um, we've relaxed, and this is sort of a, a little bit of a wake-up call. I guess the bottom line is, you know, everyone, there is an infrastructure in place preparing the state for whatever happens, and that's a good thing. Um, let's give Glenn Ford the final word. The people of Portland, through, through working together, they're ready. If there really were a day called X, how about you? That big sting there. You need a big sting. Every time you say something, Dave, you should play a sting like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in reflecting on what's going on, my my beef is that we've created a system where one guy is capable of basically blowing up everybody, which I yeah. think is ridiculous. And I think that uh, we have to raise our kids so that if ever one of them were to be in a position under such a tyrant, they just wouldn't follow the order. Yeah. And to me, that's the key, that you don't raise your kids ever to shoot on their own people. You don't raise your kids to be so ignorant that they would follow an order to uh, nuke a city and kill civilians so that uh, the day will come when the tyrant will speak the order and everybody will say, really? Sorry, not doing that. 
that comes yeah. with training your kids to question authority, right? Yeah. I think for generations we've taught kids, yeah. be nice, uh, respect your elders, and that means your teachers and your other adults in your life, and it causes you to follow them because your parents told you to, even if they're doing something that feels wrong in your gut. So if we can raise kids to listen to their gut and speak power to authority, then I think you're going to get what you're asking for, Dave. We'll see. Maybe bring Glenn Ford in to narrate some of your family yes, occasions right, when you get it? together. Now, kids, yeah. do not what your parents say, but what you think is right. Mm-hmm. Felix Bennell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, in the 20s and 30s, Seattle's pro baseball team held spring training all over California. Baseball, baseball, the Tigers in baseball, baseball, Ted Williams in baseball, baseball, I love the game baseball, Yankees, Red Legs, Braves, White Sox, well, too bad. Indians, don't have, don't have enough baseball songs anymore. Here it is, March 1st, 19 days from the start of spring itself and 40 days from the first pitch at Safeco field in the meantime we have spring training and that's where historian felix Bennell comes in brought to you by the king county library system so spring training from years past yeah you know the mariners have been in peoria for years they were in tempe before that it's you know it's it's all very uh very formal you buy tickets it's a beautiful facility long before the mariners you know almost a century ago seattle's pro baseball team was the indians of the pacific coast league they had spring training too but it wasn't quite as nice as it was in peoria but first, we have to understand who the Indians actually were. Um, the team was a big deal, and they had lots of fans, especially when they were winning. That hasn't changed. Right. I asked local baseball historian David Eskenazi what the Seattle Indians meant to people around here in the 1920s. Seattle Indians franchise in the 20s was really pretty successful the first half of the decade. Between 1920 and 1925, they finished between first and fourth, I think, five out of six years, including the first Pacific Coast League championship in 1924 which was a real tight race right down to the wire, gave fans of the 20s you know, a taste of, of winning a pennant in the Pacific Coast League. Wow. So, so this was new for me because spring training for the Indians, they didn't have a single place they returned to every year. It turns out they trained, out in a, trained in a new community almost every year in the 1920s and 1930s, really moved around. And every place they trained was a small town in California near Los Angeles or San Francisco. I mean, who's heard of Taft, Hanford, Stockton, Santa Maria, Santa Cruz, Hermosa Beach, San Clemente, San Bernardino, Bakersfield? These aren't places you normally think of as stops on a historic baseball tour site, uh, tour of historic baseball sites. So I asked Pacific Coast League Historical Society member uh, Bill Castellanos why teams like the Indians moved around so much. We were talking about the Depression years. It was trying to get the best deal available. Each city did, had some access to money, but not necessarily what the, what the ball club really needed. So they had to pick the cities based on what, what their availability of funds would be. Beyond that, I think it's all pure, pure guesswork. But I also reached out to a lot of historians and museums in, in those baseball ghost towns. And uh, Lori Ware is a curator at the Kern Museum in Bakersfield. She told me baseball was huge in Baker, Bakersfield in the 1920s and 30s. You know, before the rise of basketball and football, it really was the American pastime. We had all kinds of baseball teams, like the various oil field companies would have baseball teams or various businesses would sponsor teams. Just as a pastime, a lot of people in their off hours, they played baseball. So what kind of places would they play in, and would they draw crowds? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's Lori Ware was able to actually track down that one of the deals that brought the Seattle Indians to Bakersfield in 1928. They were given a $5,000 guarantee 
if they were willing to hold their spring training here. About $2,200 of that would cover their hotel expenses while they were in town, (laughs) and the additional $2,800 was paid to teams from out of town, like the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Chicago Cubs, a club from Denver, and the L.A. Colored Giants. So it, it was a lot really of zeros all, missing from those numbers. Yeah, it was all about the money. I mean, they basically played cities off against each other. It sounds just like these stadium deals now. Like you'd, you'd read in the newspaper in the in November of one year that a certain town was trying to draw the team away from where they'd spent training the previous year to come to their town. And so the local Lions Club in Bakersfield they paid the team five thousand bucks, and then they sold tickets to try to recoup oh, their see. investment and, and make a profit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it was brilliant, but it meant this sort of peripatetic, you know, moving around every year to a different place with a new ballpark and a hotel and this it'd be great to go through california and tour all these like 12 or 15 towns that the hosted the seattle rainiers back 90 years ago yeah well it is it is big business now you ever been down to spring training i've never we, been there. we did that one year and it is it is a uh, a celebration of uh, sunshine uh hot dogs baseball apple pie the whole thing and uh it's it's glorious but it um it doesn't have that uh, that small town feel necessarily. No, you know my favorite year. They also they went to San Clemente for two years, which was a town in California where President Nixon eventually lived. That town was created by former Seattle Mayor Ole Hansen. I never knew this before. He resigned oh. after the general strike, went to California, and created San Clemente. And then the Indians played there for two years. How about that? Mm-hmm. Everything Felix does is at mynorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. And now for the Never Green Minute, a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening in the week ahead around the Pacific Northwest. First up, the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the UW presents In Focus, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. This Zoom panel discussion features UW faculty and other guest speakers on the unfolding situation in Ukraine. It takes place Monday, March 7th at 4 p.m., it's free but requires advanced registration. Search Ellison Center UW for more info. Next up, Seattle Architecture Foundation presents From Stone to Steel, Seattle style from then till now. This decade-by-decade walking tour examines what's been new and exciting in downtown Seattle's built environment from 1889 through today. It takes place Saturday, March 12th at 10 a.m. More info at seattlearchitecture.org. And finally, Waterfront Park Seattle presents Secrets of Seattle's Historic Shoreline, a free walking tour with geology writer David B. Williams, exploring how the Seattle shoreline has shifted across time. This will take place Wednesday, March 16th at 10 a.m. More info at waterfrontparkseattle.org. We'll have more history happenings on next week's edition of the Nevergreen Minute. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State. people of Portland through through working together they're ready if there really were a day called X how about you <laughs>